My name is Robert, one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. I'm glad that you are here. Um, I pray, and my prayer is for us and for you, that this morning God will do what only he can do uh, by his spirit and through his word, um, continually work to transform us into the image and likeness of his son. So that's why we're here. Uh, That's what we're after. Um, In the 2005 New York Times bestseller, The Kite Runner, I don't know if any of you ever read it, but these are the opening words. I became what I am today at the age of 12 on a frigid, overcast day in the winter of 1975. In that story, the main character named Amir was recalling the day when, in fear, he hid behind a crumbling mud wall while he watched his best and most loyal friend be brutally robbed of his innocence, of his childhood, and of his dignity. Amir goes on to say that was a long, long time ago. But it's wrong what they say about the past, about how you can bury it, because the past claws its way out. And for 26 years, uh, Amir tried to bury his memory of that day. He tried to bury his fear of that day. He tried to bury his shame from that day, the shame of his betrayal. And then one day, he got a phone call from a friend who knew all about his secret. And this is what his friend said. He said, Amir, you need to come back. There is a way for you to be good again. There is a way for you to be good again. You may have never read the book, you may have never seen the movie, but I guarantee if you are really honest, and again, I know this is a difficult place to be honest this way. If you're really honest, you know the feeling. You know the feeling of that question. You know the feeling of what it is to have shame, to have fear, to try to outrun a memory only to hear there is a way to be good again. Maybe you can put your finger on the exact moment and the exact time when shame became a permanent resident in your heart. It may have been that time you finally went to that place that you swore you would never go and things have never been the same again. It may be that morning you woke up and the person next to you was not your husband or your wife. It may very well have been that day when you trusted someone and you placed yourself and your life in their hands and they took your trust and abused you with it. It may have been the moment when you did that to someone else. Whatever the moment may be, ever since shame, became a permanent resident in your heart, you know what it is to try to outrun it. You know what it is to try to bury the memory of it. You know what it is to just try to get away from it. I know it. I have found myself in places and circumstances that have brought such devastation to my own life and to the life of others around me. And no matter how hard I try, I can't outrun it. I can't 
leave it behind. I, I, I can't simply forget it and, and wish it away. Every single last one of us wants to be good again. Wants to know, is there a way to be good again? That's why Genesis chapter three is for you and for me. How did we end up with this shame? Where did this impulse to run come from? Is there really a way? Is there really a way to be good again? In Genesis chapter one and chapter two, where we've been the last few weeks, we saw there was a time when everything about the earth and everything about the earth and everyone on the earth was good. In fact, God said it was very good. God had intentionally and purposefully and lovingly and powerfully spoken everything that is into existence and then with gentleness and care, he had handcrafted man, handcrafted woman for his glory and for one another, for their joy. And he took man and he took woman and he placed them in the garden, the garden of delight, the garden of luxury. And he was, in his love and in his glory, he then commanded the man and the woman to enjoy everything that he had made everything that he had planned, everything that he had purposed, everything that he had spoken into existence, he said, enjoy it, enjoy it. Every need provided for gloriously from the hand of their creator. All they were to do was to just trust God, to just trust that as he had created the sun that brought them light, that brought them warmth, that was doing its work in creation, and that as every day it came back again just as God created the sun and every day spoke it into its rhythm, he would continue to provide for them. He would continue to sustain them. He would continue to be their source of never-ending, glorious joy and delight into that garden of joy, that garden of luxury, Eden means, that garden of delight, came another character. We see it in Genesis chapter three, if you open up right there. This is where we're gonna be this morning. We've got a lot to say, got a lot to do. Genesis chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Very important phrase right there in verse one. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. God intends for us to remember as we go through this story that this serpent is a product of creation. It's important to remember from the very beginning of this story who is sovereign. Who has God revealed himself to be already? The one only necessary, all sufficient, eternal, all powerful, non-created, good God. This serpent is a product of creation. He came to the woman and he said to her, and I imagine a bit of sarcasm in this. You have to kind of imagine the tone. Did, did God actually, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You notice that the serpent, he doesn't lead in this conversation with Eve with an argument. He doesn't construct a finely crafted 
argument to try to undo something in Eve. He starts with an insinuation. Did God actually? Really? Are you, are you sure about that? Did, did God actually say that? He wasn't trying to argue something with Eve. He was, he was planting a seed. It, the serpent wasn't fact-checking. He hadn't forgotten what God had said, and now, Eve, I need you to set the record straight for me. Did God actually say that? No, he was planting a seed of doubt. Doubt in Eve's mind about God's goodness, about God's wisdom, about God's fairness. He wanted her to consider that maybe, maybe God was being unreasonable with her. Maybe this God is really more unreasonable than you've given credit for because what kind of king, what kind of God would create a crazy rule like this? Eat everything in the garden, just don't eat that tree. Did he, actually, did he actually say this? Now, if you're new with us, we have a habit of reading and then talking, and along the way, we'll try to bring it down to where we are, and we'll read and we'll talk so that you can understand what's going on here, but hopefully you can already see there's not a lot new under the sun. And the writer of Ecclesiastes will make that phrase popular later as we get on in our study of the Bible, but there's not a lot new under the sun. Have you ever taken God's very clear words meant for his glory and your joy and begin to sort them out a bit in your own mind as unreasonable or out of date or unnecessarily harsh? Have you ever read his word or been presented by his word and thought, you know, that just seems a bit unreasonable. Did God actually say that I need to remain faithful to my spouse in the midst of a marriage in which I don't think I'm actually in love anymore? Did he actually say that? Did he, did he really mean that I'm, I'm supposed to give of my income in a sacrificial way? Isn't it mine? Did, did, he, really, did he really say these things? Did, did God really say that I'm supposed to forgive that person who has hurt me repeatedly? Seems a bit harsh, doesn't it? This is a little unfair, doesn't it? One commentator said, Satan in this verse, we see him smuggling in the assumption that God's word was subject to our judgment. We see Satan smuggling in for the first time the idea that God's good word, the word that spoke everything into existence, the the word that directed and nourished Adam's life for his sustaining and his enjoyment, that God's good word was now subject to our judgment. Temptation always involves, in one way or another, you beginning to question God's word. Always begins with you, somehow or another, questioning God's word and ultimately questioning the one who who gave it. And as temptation begins to take root and you begin to find yourself questioning the reasonableness, the goodness, the fairness, the accuracy of God's word and the one who gave it, it necessarily leads to you finding a way to begin to manipulate it. Temptation always breeds a questioning of God's word and a manipulation of God's word. Look at what he said. Did he actually say, question, manipulation now? You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Is that what God had said? We spent time last week looking at this very command of God and how it was very clear in God's word that God placed the emphasis of his command to Adam and Eve on eat freely. You you shall... Surely eat freely of everything that I have created, God said. But of that one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Because in the day you do, you will die. But eat freely. This is what you should surely do. This is what I want for you. 
I created this for you. I'm nourishing you. I'm sustaining you. Enjoy all that I've created. Just don't eat that one tree. Satan now subtly begins to manipulate God's word. Did God really say you shouldn't eat of any tree in the garden? And by manipulating God's word this way, Satan was flipping the emphasis of God's command away from the joy intended by God for Adam and Eve now to an idea that God is unnecessarily harsh, excessively restrictive. Verse two, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said that you shall not eat of the fruit tree that is in the midst of the garden. So she's, she's right. She's on her way to, to rebuking the, the idea, the questioning idea, the seed planted by Satan with the accuracy of God's word. But then we begin to see those seeds that Satan had planted begin to take root, begin to germinate, begin to flower. Eve herself now begins to manipulate God's word. God said we are to eat of every tree in the garden. We shouldn't eat, though, of that tree that's in the midst of the garden neither shall we touch it lest you die Eve doubt in the goodness of God and his word has taken root somehow in Eve's heart now God's word seems unreasonable it seems cruel she doubts what she should trust and what she should know to be true about who God is and what he has actually said. Who has God revealed himself to be to them already? How has he revealed his faithfulness and his love for them? How has he revealed his ongoing provision for them and his purpose for them? She should trust what she knows, but those seeds of doubt, that questioning of God's intention, that questioning of the goodness of his word has taken root, and now somehow in Eve's heart, she's beginning to see God as excessively restrictive, and she adds to God's word. Temptation always starts somehow with a questioning of God's word and a manipulation to some degree of God's word and it can take on different forms. Verse four, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. God's lied to you guys. And not only is he restrictive and overbearing, but he can't be trusted. He's not even telling you the truth. This subtle questioning of God's word This subtle questioning of his goodness has led to a manipulation of what he has said and an an uncharacteristic portrait of God which now has led to what temptation always ends up leading to in our life when it takes root. And that's a denial of God's word. A questioning of God's word inevitably leads in our heart to a manipulating of God's word for whatever ends we're after which ultimately gives birth to a denial of God's word. And I want you to note, we won't stay here for a long time, I just want you to to make a note and let it sit that the very first doctrine that was denied, that we have record of being denied in the Bible is the doctrine of judgment. And I say take note of this because I want you to ask yourself, how often do you still try to set your heart and your mind at peace? How often do you still try to excuse yourself and what you know to be true about you with the idea that it's really no big deal. They're really, this idea of judgment, somehow or another we've made it up to go along with the story. Somehow or another you know, you can think of a circumstance right now that you have convinced yourself that nobody really cares. It's no big deal. 
that lie I told to my neighbor to get from them what I needed, it's, he'll never know. He'll never know. It's no big deal. There's really no consequence for what's about to happen. It's okay, I can take care of it. First doctrine in the Bible ever recorded to be denied is the doctrine of judgment. And again, nothing new under the sun. Gossip, no big deal. Disobedience, no big deal. Envy, it's really not what it looks like. God's being overbearing. He's too restrictive. He's not truthful. You can't trust him for your happiness because he's withholding something from you. There's something he's withholding from you. He's keeping you from realizing the fullness of what's possible. He's keeping you from realizing the fullness of your potential. Look at verse five. Because for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here's here's the insinuation. Here's where he's taking them. Don't miss this. Obey God. Be obedient to God's good word towards you. End up miserable. Don't miss this. It's really simple, but it's very subtle. Obey God. End up miserable. Rebel. Pick a different word. Choose your own way. End up satisfied. End up full. End up with the full potential it's possible for you. Obedience, misery. Rebellion, freedom. It's planting seeds in the very beginning that are starting to give root, take root in the heart of man and woman. This has always been his pitch from day one. Holiness or obedience will always get in the way of your happiness. His pitch has not changed. Just ask yourself how true that sounds to you. Again, be honest with yourself. Obedience to God's word, holiness, will ultimately get in the way of happiness for you, won't it? This is his pitch. You don't need God to tell you you what's right and what's wrong. You can be your own God. Haven't you realized yet there's a lot more gray in this thing than he wants you to actually believe? And now here we are in the garden right here and you've got two things at odds. God's word, now the word of the serpent. This is what it comes down to. God's word and the word of the serpent. Loyalty and trust, doubt, rebellion. This is why we started this series out by saying emphatically, God's word working through God's spirit is God's chief or primary instrument in the establishing of God's people and the sustaining, the cultivating, the maturing, the growing, and the nourishing of God's people because it always comes down to this. It always comes down to your posture and your attitude regarding God and his word. This is what it always comes down to. This is what it started with and this is what it continues with for you. What is your posture and your attitude toward God and his word? Is he who he has said he is? Are his words wisdom and a pathway to satisfaction and delight or misery? 
Is your posture towards God's word one of surrender? Or is it one of authority where you feel like you have authority over his word? This was the idea that Satan smuggled in, one commentator said at the beginning. Is his word subject to your judgment? Or is his word life? Very subtly, the serpent is saying, who gets to call the shots for you? Listen, who gets to call the shots for you? Do you get to call the shots? Or does God call the shots? It's repressive and unnecessarily harsh. Guy that can't really be trusted because he's not telling you the full truth because he's keeping you back. Who's gonna call the shots, you or him? The answer to that question changed the course of the world. And when you begin to question God's word and begin to manipulate God's word and tragically begin to deny God's word, you begin to look at disobedience in an entirely new light. You begin to look at what was clearly wrong, what was clearly against the revealed will of God. You begin to look at disobedience in an entirely new light. Look at this, verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, was it not good for food before? I mean, all of a sudden, had now Satan and just embodied in this tree some kind of goodness for food that Eve hadn't seen? I mean, do you get, had it not been good for food before? But she's looking at it differently now. And that it was a delight to the eyes? Had she missed that all along? Had some kind of cloak or some kind of covering been over this tree the whole time and all of a sudden Eve had never seen that it was actually pretty like everything else in all of creation? It was pleasing to the eyes like everything else in the garden of delight? No, no, no. She's just looking at her disobedience in an entirely new way. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Now, now she was wanting a wisdom. Now she's wanting a wisdom that she already has, but she wants it, not independence upon God, but an independence from him. She's beginning to look at her disobedience in an entirely new light. And so she took of the fruit and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now let me just say this again, we won't stay here for a long time. Just want to acknowledge the fact, as many of you are probably thinking, that this text has been used for centuries in countless ways to demean women and in some sense to exploit and to abuse women. And we won't go into all the ways that this has been used to do that. Just recognize that it has. But look at what the emphasis is in this verse. You can't, it's hard to see in, in our translations, but Adam Adam was with her and he just stood there and he watched. Adam was not directly deceived by the serpent. Eve was deceived by the serpent. Adam, who was there, was not directly deceived by the serpent. Serpent. So what did he do? He willingly rebelled against the good word of God. No deception involved. Willful disobedience to the revealed good word of God. He just willfully rebelled against God's word, assuming that there would be no consequence for it. Eve listened to the serpent. Adam listened to Eve. 
Don't miss this. No one was listening to God. Eve listened to the words of the serpent. Adam listened to the words of Eve, but nobody was listening to the words of God. Look at verse seven. When this happened, the eyes of both were opened. So the serpent was half right. Their eyes were in fact open, but hmm, they're not quite like God. The eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. What was the result of this eye-opening experience? This promise of now being able to see clearly? Was it being like God? Was it being in God-likeness? They were already created in the image and likeness of God. The result wasn't being more like God, it was actually being less human. God's original normal for humanity was created in the image and likeness of God. Now their eyes are open, are they more like him? No, not at all. The result is their, their own shame. What they saw was their own nakedness and they couldn't bear the exposure. And so they sewed fig leaves together and they made for themselves loincloths. That moment, instead of seeking God and confessing their transgression, confessing their disobedience, confessing their sin, confessing their lack of trust in his word and their believing of a lie about him and about his goodness, they tried to conceal their sin. They tried to hide their shame. Tried to get behind it. Put something out in front of it. Somehow keep it from being seen. Verse eight. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and he said to him, where are you? Rhetorical question, by the way. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I want you to pay attention to two very important things that Adam says right here. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. First mention of fear in the Bible, right here. Shame, fear, isolation. I hid who? Myself. Who was he with? Who was he with? He's with his wife. Now who is he concerned about? Himself. Shame, fear, Now isolation, hiding, keeping away from God and from one another. The trinity of sin there. Verse 11, God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Rhetorical question. Now at this point, here's another shot. What could have Adam done? What could Adam do here? What could he do? I come clean. I didn't trust your word. I believe that you were actually keeping something back from me, that my happiness and my joy, as delightful as this has been, would actually be found in figuring it out for myself. Maybe there was more for me. Maybe there was more joy for me that you were keeping me back from. I, don't, I didn't trust you. I'm full of shame. I'm undone. I'm afraid of you. I, could have come clean. Instead of offering himself in confession, 
Adam offered up to God an excuse. From that point, it's like dominoes. Excuses just flowing like water. Just listen to this. Verse 12, the man said, the woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. it. It's her fault for giving me the fruit, but you know what? It's your fault. You made her, you gave her to me. Eve, who knows what the look on Eve's face was, was like in the midst of all this, but the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? She said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. It's the origination of the devil made me do it, excuse. Seriously. Questioning God's word. Did he really mean you could fill in the blank right there with whatever you want. Somehow or another always produces in your heart a manipulating of God's word. He's, he's so overbearing. I, I can't believe that I can't even fill in the blank. I mean, you begin to question God's word and question God's goodness and manipulate God's word, you inevitably begin to deny God's word. Whatever that is, fill in the blank. It's really no big deal. It's just taxes. It's just a little, just a little white lie. Nobody's gonna get hurt. No, it's, it's not gonna hurt anybody. Nobody's gonna even find out. Questioning God's word, manipulating God's word, denying God's word, never leads to the satisfaction, the enlightenment, and the happiness that it promised. It always leads to shame, fear, and isolation. It, this is the deceitfulness of sin. It, there's no real judgment. God's just being unfair. These are just the words of some outdated God. He just doesn't want you to realize the fullness of what's possible for you. He doesn't want you to know that you don't really need him. You can figure this out all on your own. Trusting him in this, it's so restrictive. Trusting him in that will only lead to your misery. The surest path to your joy is to figure out what you should do right here in this moment and pursue what makes sense to you. promise you all you'll be left with is shame, fear, and isolation. And right there in the garden at this moment, even before he spoke to them, God is the creator of all things. The sovereign God of the universe has every single right within him to kill them dead. Just like that. And he would not be unfair. He would not be unjust. But what happens next is the beginning of the bigger story of the rest of the Bible. What happens next is just a glimmer of what we're gonna see throughout the rest of our journey through the entire Bible. While Adam and Eve were hiding, hiding themselves behind fig leaves, hiding themselves behind trees, just like we do today. God is seeking them. In his grace and in his mercy, God is pursuing them. They deserve to die for their sin, yet God draws near. God draws near to give them life. This is the God that pursues rebels. 
He is the one, only true, eternal, self-sufficient, only necessary, all-powerful, non-created, good God that pursues those, even those who rebel against his word. Watch his response, verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and thus you shall eat all the days of your life and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God did not question the serpent. He came to Adam and Eve. Well, what have you done? Here's your shot. Just tell me. Tell me. Eve, what, what have you done? Just tell me. Serpent, cursed. Cursed are you. Didn't even question him. But I love, I love what Nancy Guthrie said in her commentary about Genesis. In the midst of this curse, we see one beautiful thing. This curse was laced with grace. A brilliant image. This curse was laced with grace. An offspring of the woman is going to come. He's going to engage the serpent in battle and he's gonna crush him. He's going to defeat him. In the midst of this curse, this curse is laced. It's just laced with the promise of what's to come. It's just laced with grace. And from this point forward, from Eve forward, every single Israelite woman, when she gives birth to the son, her son, is gonna wonder, is this the one? Is this the one that God had promised? But as we'll see in our journey through the Bible, each and every single one of those boys died. And as we go through, we're gonna see that the Old Testament is the story of God preparing his people and a people longing for a promise that he had made right here. And when we get to the New Testament, we're gonna see a promise kept. This promised son that God had said and spoken of right here. The promised offspring that will come. That will engage in battle with this serpent and will crush this serpent. This serpent right here. We don't yet have a name for him. so We won't jump ahead. This serpent was an object of wrath. Don't miss this. Adam and Eve are objects of God's mercy. I don't know if you ever read Genesis 3 this way. The serpent is an object of God's wrath. Cursed are you. And here's what's gonna happen. One's gonna come, he's gonna crush you. Adam and Eve, they're objects of God's mercy. God cursed the serpent directly, but he does not curse the man or the woman directly. When we talk about the curse of Adam and the curse of Eve, that's improper. God does not curse Adam and Eve. God curses Satan, and in his pronouncement of punishment for Adam, he curses the ground, but God never directly curses the man or the woman. Look at this. They receive mercy. It's not gonna sound like mercy, but they're still breathing. They should be dead. No right to still be alive. Rebellion against the word of their king. Treason, right there in the garden of luxury. What they receive is mercy. To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. No curse, just a consequence. What was intended by God to bring woman her greatest joy. Now the source of pain. 
it's not just labor pains. You can't avoid this natural consequence of the sin of the woman in the garden by getting doped up when you have a child. That's not what he's talking about. Yes, there's pain in the process of childbearing, but there's also infertility. There's also miscarriage, there's also stillbirth, there's also birth defects. There's also physical disabilities and there's also the pain of raising up a sinful child in a fallen world. What was to be your greatest joy, it's not gonna cause you pain. And your desire, it shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. You, you were made to be your husband's helper, your, his helpmate. This is what I had purposed for you, but now you're gonna spend all of your days on this earth doing battle with a desire to dictate things to him, to manipulate him, to dominate him, and he who's supposed to be your helpmate, your partner in this whole thing, he's not gonna take the authority that he has to lead his family forward in the mission that God had given him, and he's gonna use it to lord it over you. This one flesh union that God had put in place here in the garden, God's original normal, now, now shattered. And to Adam, God said, verse 17, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground, direct curse there, not to Adam though. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Here's your consequence, the punishment of your sin. The thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. To Adam God gave the, the dignity, the authority to do work, to cultivate the garden that God had placed him in to steward the garden that God had placed in him in such a way that that garden would spread from right there in Eden in that one place throughout the ends of the earth and the glory of God would be made known through the cultivation of the ground through which God had given to Adam from Eden to the ends of the earth. And Adam would be satisfied. God would be glorified. This was the dignity that God had gave him and now Adam will do work. But everything that Adam does is gonna fight against him. And his work is not gonna produce fruit, it's gonna produce thorns. It's gonna produce pain. The earth is gonna fight against him. Where there were fruit, now there are weeds. And one day, one day, yeah, you, you didn't die when you did this. You thought maybe the enemy was half right. No, you're going to die. You will now taste death in your body. From dust you came, dust you shall return. Not a curse, just a consequence. God's original normal that we've looked at in the last couple of weeks is now undone. It's now shattered. Death has come to the life they knew and death will now come to the bodies that they live in. I want to ask yourself just for a second, what would your response to this be if you were them? How would you respond? Anger? Frustration? Bitterness? Would you lash out? And look at Adam's. Don't, don't miss Adam's response to this. Verse 20. This is 
God just pronounced a curse on the serpent. He just explained to Adam and Eve what the consequences of their sinful behavior were gonna be. They've got to be wondering at any point if they're gonna breathe and die, because he said you would. He just explained what the consequences for their sin, what it's gonna look like. Now look at what Adam does next. Verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all of the living. Adam caught the grace that was laced in the middle of the curse that God had just pronounced against the serpent. Don't miss this, Adam caught the promise that was laced in the middle of that curse that God had just pronounced a couple of minutes ago on the serpent. Death had come because of his sin, because of his disobedience, because of his rebellion. But look at what he did. He put his hope in the one who had promised that one day, one day one who's the offspring of the woman will come and will defeat this serpent who had tempted him to bring this disobedience about. Before Adam heard his fate, before he even heard the consequences for his disobedience, he heard God's grace. He heard God's promise of what's to come. And his response to that promise was now faith. And he named his wife Eve, the mother of all of the living, because God had promised, he had promised that through the offspring of the woman, one day one will come. He heard the grace in the midst of the curse and he responded in faith. So much, so much we can still learn from Adam about how to live and how to respond to a fallen world that we live in. So much we can learn from Adam about how to celebrate the grace of God in our life right here, right now, and how to live with hope right here, right now. So much we can learn from Adam knowing that God's final word, his final word, his word that establishes us and sustains us is his promise of grace. So much to learn from Adam. Verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and he clothed them. Oh man. See the pattern? God moves from a promise of grace now to a living picture of grace. Right here in the garden, in the midst of their rebellion, their disobedience, their lack of honesty with God, God demonstrates how a sinful creature like them, how a sinful creature like you and I can be made right with a holy God. Don't miss it. They needed their shame covered. Their shame still has to be covered. For that to happen, God is just showing. He's not saying and he's not fully clarifying. He's just showing that for your shame to be covered, someone innocent has to die. You still need it covered. There is no accountability group that you can get in and just confess enough of your shame that'll make it go away. It still has to be covered. It still has to be dealt with. And God is just showing, just a glimmer. Just a picture of what it means to be made right with a holy God. Before a sacrificial system, before priests, God was just showing that for the forgiveness of sins, there must be the shedding of blood. We're gonna hear that later in the Bible as we go through it. Somehow or another, an innocent has to substitute for the guilty. 
And Adam and Eve, in the midst of the garden, in the midst of their rebellion, in the midst of their disobedience, in the midst of their shame, in the midst of their hiding, they received grace and mercy in the midst of God's cursing of the serpent. There's one last consequence, though. One last consequence. Look at verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man, he drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword. What would that look like? A flaming sword that turned every way, like gyroscopic, every way, to guard the way to the tree of life. Adam had failed in the garden. In his disobedience and failure, he destroyed God's original normal. He lost the garden and he lost the perfect relationship with the one who had created him. Questioning God's word, manipulating God's word, denying God's word. A temptation has now left them in shame, fear, and isolation. Don't miss the question from the beginning this morning. Is there a way to be good again? They're outside the garden now. They don't have the relationship with God that they had once had. They're separated. Now they're even alienated from one another in the relationship that they had had. They can't get back in. Is there a way to be good again? In The Kite Runner, I don't know if you read the book or you saw the movie, that man's friend, Amir's friend, who knew his secret all along, tells him there is a way to be good again. Here's what it is. You need to go back to that place of your shame. Go back to that hometown where everything happened, where you watched your friend be absolutely, brutally abused and robbed of everything that made him dignified and innocent. Go back to that place, and here's what you do. You take his son and you make him your own. You take his son, you make him your own. There's a way for you to be good again. It's up to you having enough courage to do what it takes to make up for the mistake that you made. You can right your own wrong. Isn't that the answer we all want? I mean, isn't there a way that I can make up for what I did? I mean, isn't there a way for me somehow or another to achieve my own redemption? <laughs> to achieve this goodness that I'm desperately after? I mean, don't every single one of us deceive ourselves by trying to to make up ways to make up for our failures? If we can just try a little bit harder? You know what, maybe if I just run faster, I can outrun the memory, I can outrun the shame, and then it'll all be okay. You know what, I'll just move. I'll just pick up and I'll go. They don't know me over there, I can put it all behind me, but the past and your shame always has a way of clawing itself out. Everywhere you go, Thomas Wolfe said, there you are. Scenery may change, people may change, but you don't. Every single one of us wants some 
system, some process, some thing that we can do to make ourselves right again. But God's word, God's story tells us there is in fact a way to be good again, but you can't do it. You can't make yourself good again. There isn't anything that you can do to achieve that redemption that your heart is so desperate for. There is a way to be good again. And in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. God always keeps his promises. Jesus of Nazareth, born of a woman, is the son of God who is the fulfillment of God's promise that he made in creation. There is a way to be good again. And just like Adam, Jesus was tested and tempted by Satan. But unlike Adam, Jesus' testing and tempting in the garden wasn't in a garden of luxury and delight. It was in a garden called Gethsemane, which meant a garden of pressing, named after an oil press that would press an olive and crush it. Like Adam, Jesus was tested and tempted in a garden, but it wasn't Eden. And in that garden of Gethsemane, the night that Jesus went to the cross, Jesus was tempted and tested with the same essential things that Adam was tempted and tested with in the garden. Will you question the goodness and reasonableness of God's word? Jesus, is, is he really being reasonable? Is this the only way? What kind of dad would do that? Are you gonna trust the goodness and reasonableness of God's word. Will you surrender to the authority of God's word? Or will you decide what's right for yourself? Will you figure out what the best thing for you in this circumstance is? Or will you surrender to the authority of his word? Will you do as God has said or will you do as you choose? Same essential things that Adam was tempted and tested by. Satan was giving Jesus one last shot at avoiding the cross. And I say this because, and I said it different ways in the last couple of weeks, don't, don't not, read the Bible like a human. This was not some flippant interaction. This testing and temptation in the garden it was the most significant spiritual temptation that has ever happened to any man or woman who has ever taken a step on this earth. There was nothing flippant about what Jesus was dealing with. Adam and Eve faced temptation in the garden of luxury. No, no pressure, just paradise. Jesus faced temptation and testing about a tree just like they did, but not in paradise, but in a dark garden whose name meant press. A temptation that was so pressing and a testing that was so pressing on his soul that the Bible says his sweat was like drops of blood. This is no flippant testing and temptation. If Adam had obeyed God about that tree in the Garden of Eden, he would have lived. If Jesus obeys God's word about that tree, in the garden he's in, it means he's gonna die. 
How did he respond? Not as I will, Father, but as you will. In his obedience in that garden, Jesus gained for you and I more than Adam lost for us in our disobedience. Adam lost for himself and for his wife and for the rest of humanity, the innocence that he'd had in the garden, the the life without shame. But on the cross, Jesus hung there in public, naked and full of shame. And the Bible says that on that cross, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. All of our sin, past, present, and future, all of the sin of humanity, all of the shame, all of the fear, all of the consequences, God made him, Jesus, to be sin, though he knew no sin, so that in him, you, you, would become the righteousness of God. Hung there, naked, full of shame, but it wasn't his own shame, it was your shame. It was your shame for your sin. The Bible says that he endured the cross, despising the shame, so that everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Jesus achieved for you and for me more than Adam ever lost in his disobedience in the garden. Jesus experienced on that cross the full extent of what real isolation from God means. He experienced the isolation from God that you and I deserve because of our sin. He cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced an isolation that he had never tasted before, an isolation that you and I will never have to taste. He did that in our place for our sin. He did that so that you and I, by placing our faith in him, can have a fellowship with God now that exceeds what Adam had in the garden. Adam lost a perfect fellowship with God and experienced isolation from the one who had created him and sustained him on a day in and day out basis. But because of Jesus' life and his death in our place for our sins, what Paul says in Colossians chapter one is true. You who were once alienated from God, isolated from God, hostile in your mind, doing evil deeds. Jesus has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. No shame. No isolation. No alienation. Fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Shameless. I love this. Derek Kidner, and we'll wrap up here. I don't think I've read anything better this week outside of the Bible. He said, Adam ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but could there ever have been a tree that bore more fruit of the knowledge of good and evil than the tree upon which Jesus died? On that tree hung the only person who has ever been perfectly good, and yet on that tree he took upon himself all of our evil so that we along with the rest of creation, might be restored, cleansed, and made good again. You do not have to spend your life hiding who you are and what you've done. Whatever it is, just hear one thing. Whatever it is, Jesus died for it. 
his life, his death in your place for your sin was sufficient, so sufficient that God raised him from the dead. He exalted him to his right hand where he rules and reigns right now. You don't have to hide. You can come out of hiding. You can confess your sins to him, your disobedience to him, your lack of faith in his good word. You can tell him He's not standing there waiting to condemn you. He's not standing there waiting to crush you. He's standing there waiting to cleanse you. No more shame. No matter what it is, Jesus can make you good again. There is a way for you to be good again. This is the story of Genesis chapter three. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Your word that tells us not only of who you are, but we hear of your promise that there is a way for us to be good again. Every single one of us wants it. Every single one of us knows what it is to feel shame, to feel fear, to feel alienation, to feel isolation, to be desperate, to be made right, and to be made good again. And your word, your good, trustworthy word tells us there is a way to be made right again through faith in your son, Jesus. And I pray that you would do what only you could do this morning and you would ignite such a faith in each one of our hearts. Whether that story is new to us or whether we've heard it a million times, make faith in the work of your son in our place for our sin, fresh, exciting, satisfying, and trustworthy to our hearts this morning. We ask this for your glory and our joy. Amen.